Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1. We have the new format for this season, which we mentioned in Episode 0. If you uh, wanted to go back and check that out, I found that episode extremely interesting. It was full of segues. Wasn't it? Yes. Now, the first, so the, the first half of this conversation will be with your, a listener of the show, Kate Mildenhall. Yes. Who wrote, actually, the book Skylarking, which you, I remember you getting last year. Oh, it was. Yeah, when did you read that? I read, before we went, went to Canada. Was, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's one of my favourite books. It is such a beautiful read. I and mean, my mum and your mum both read it. Uh, after and I still think about the characters in Skylarking. So while this season is not about authors or anything like that, it just so happens that Kate wrote to me when I put as a listener of as the a show. listener of the show yeah. and has been a listener of the show for for a long time. Wrote to me when I put out the the call out for people to to submit to being part of season four and her questions and where she finds herself right now in life is such, it's such a relatable place to be, but it's all, she also asks incredibly insightful questions. So to give you a very sort of broad picture of where we pick up our conversation, Kate is an author and she's in a position now where she could potentially be an author full time, mm-hmm. which is kind of the dream. Yep. And these are, you know, this is how she described it. But she has so many other things that she loves doing. So she's a podcaster. Mm -hmm. She is a teacher. She does a lot of writing workshops, travels around, particularly working with kids, teenagers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, introducing them to creative writing, helping them develop creative writing. And she's so passionate about all of these things. So when you have too many passions. Well, no, it's but the question then with slow living is she also understands the need to slow down because she she has suffered burnout. She's worried that slow living will dull her ambition <laughs> and that will it will take some of the edges off off her life. And it's as an author, those edges are important. Because that's what creativity is and that's what Well, that's where you get to feel the highs yeah. and the lows yeah. and, and kind of absorbing all of that is where you start to fill out your life experience and fill that bucket from which you can draw as a as an author. So it's such a phenomenal conversation, such a great place to to kick off. And just before we get into the conversation, if you want to find out more about anything discussed in today's episode, head over to slowyourhome.com slash season four. I'm really excited to to share this today and I hope that you enjoy it. Kate, hello. How are you? Hello, Brooke. I'm very well, thank you. I wanted to have you as part of this season because you wrote me such a a beautiful, honest email about managing the tension between being ambitious and living slowly, as well as a really insightful question about whether slowing down takes away some of the spark, um, you know, or kind of dulls your shine. Yeah. And I think that these are two really interesting questions that I grapple with um, and I certainly don't have down pat because I don't think you can. Uh, yeah. But I think that a lot of people listening will also have considered these questions. So um, I'm really excited to, to dive in. So the first part of your email, you wrote, how can I manage ambition and drive and striving and the thrumming excitement of new ideas and projects and possibilities and adventures 
with the goal of a slower life. I really don't necessarily think that they need to be mutually exclusive. I really do thrive on change and adventure and risk and jumping into the unknown. But I also thrive on this kind of grounding of what slow brings me rather than actually living slow. So, I mean, when you think about living slowly, what do you picture? What does that look like for you? Right now, living slowly has been knitting. This is the strangest answer to your question, but we've just been on a trip around Australia with our kids, um, which was completely delightful and lots of togetherness and slowing down and not having to deal with the world you know, other than the road and seeing things. And when we got back, we were really concerned with trying to keep that feeling somehow. So we, you know, we decided we might have a fire one night a week um, and do marshmallows because we did that while we're away. But also I wanted to, to do something that would keep me off my phone at night that would, you know, maybe stop me drinking quite so much coffee and wine. <laughs> and so I've, I've knitted this past three weeks and it's given me this time in the evening where I can talk to my partner and be chilled and not be trying to do email and social media at the same time as watching something <laughs> on television. Um, and it feels like it's I've got more time in my day. Right. So I think slow to me looks like having time to sit with myself or with the kids, um, it not being back to back all the time. I remember, and I can't remember the name of your guest. This is really early on, but talking about having white space in between yep. things. Yep. And I used to be the person who would just back to back everything in my diary, like one after another. What can I multitask while I'm on my way to the shops, on the way to this meeting, on the way to somewhere else? And I've tried to really embrace that white space in between things as well. So creating that buffer. Yes, the buffer. Exactly that. And the other enormous thing I've taken from, from you and the podcast is the idea of tilting. And I think what I've tried to embrace a little bit more with slowness is there's going to be times where it's really intense and trying to get myself and the whole family to kind of work with that. But, but I think that's one of the things I haven't got right yet and I wanted to ask you about as well. How do you get your kids to understand what tilting looks like? It's such a good question because it's a concept that I think a lot of adults still have to really mull over and chew on and sometimes come to a moment of, oh, right, that's what it looks like to tilt. Like it's willingly doing one thing so that you're acknowledging that you're willingly not doing all the other things at yep. the same time. And that requires us to drop our standards. Yep. It requires us to compromise. And they're things that maybe we're brought up being told aren't good qualities. They're not good traits, you know, particularly if you have that perfectionistic streak or that, that real drive to do all the things, yeah. which sounds like, you know, you, you are kind of coming up against in your, in yourself at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to describe it to kids is difficult. I think uh, my, my kids are 10 and eight, and I actually had a conversation with them recently about, um, you know, the idea of time together or, um, you know, trust or kindness as being a bank account. Yes. And we make deposits regularly by yeah. doing things together or by, you know, being kind or by showing up or by doing the right thing when we've been trusted. And then there are things that are withdrawals from that. Yeah. And my daughter particularly, who's 10, she, I think that that idea, that kind of give and take, that did seem to really help her understand that I can't be doing this one thing that you want from me all the time because there's all these other things in life that also need my attention. 
they're not as important as you. Yeah. And if it came to a do or die, absolutely had to make a choice, of course, you know, I want you to have that security and knowledge that I would choose to spend the time with you or to support you. But that's not life typically. Life is typically a lot more in the grey than that. Uh, And I found that that really helped her to understand it. And it's a good kind of visual to draw her back to if ever she's feeling, you know, like uh, she's being hard done by, uh, which kids sometimes do feel like that. And, yeah, so I think that 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 idea helped rather than trying to explain to them how heavy life can feel as an adult because of all the responsibilities and requirements to just acknowledge that, you know, I've I've deposited and and we're good, which means that there's a little bit of taking that can be done and that that should feel okay as long as you know that, you know, it will come back. I think that really kids, anyone, kind of learns about these changes that we want to make in our lives by watching us make them Mm. and by seeing the benefits perhaps that we get to enjoy and then the flow and benefits that they get to enjoy too. Yes. So, I mean, what you've done by spending all that time with your family over the last couple of months is you've filled that those buckets like they are full to the brim yes and that's that part too where you go you know my partner and I we understand that (laughs) we feel like we've got that and um I often have to go I often go on retreat to do my writing so I'll go on a one week or you know four or five day retreat and I am so extraordinarily efficient in that time I often say to people it's the same work I would get done in a two-month period yeah. that I get done in five days because I'm child-free um, and I'm so in the zone. And I know that that works for me mm-hmm. and, and I know that it works for my partner and I know that ultimately it works for the kids because I can come back and be far more present with them. Yeah. But it is that tension. And I think sometimes, yeah, they'll understand that. They'll look back and they'll understand it eventually. Um but it's just at that constant day-to-day tension of when they want you and need you and why are you away again, that kind of stuff yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, I think that that's life, isn't it? Like my dad went away for three months um, when I was 11 and yeah. it was a, a fantastic career opportunity. Looking back, I'm so proud of my family for being able to have done that. Yes. Um, but at the time it was a wrench, you know. Of course, of course. Yeah. We're really good at, at guilting ourselves, you know, even while you're like you're tilting. I mean, you, what you're describing is tilting yeah. already. Yeah. You've got that down. It's just unlearning the the guilt that comes with it, yeah. I think. So part of your email, the, the first part of your email, you were speaking about all of these projects and all these ideas and all of these wonderful things. So you're an author, you teach, yeah. you're a podcaster, yeah. you take on a lot of really exciting projects what drives that it's part of wanting to do all the things (laughs) there's a whole lot of writers who would describe themselves as introverts I'm a bit more of an extrovert since I haven't been full-time teaching one of the things I've most missed is not being able to collaborate with other people and not talking to other people every day so I love any opportunity to do events to talk to people I've say yes to lots of things all the time and I and also on a more pragmatic level like I want to build this into a career. I, mm-hmm. I I am trying to use my smarts to think about always building, always looking towards the next thing, making sure that um, I'm building something around me that, that looks like the kind of career that I want. And the problem with that is that I do a lot of that in really high energy states. So, and things will follow when you're in high energy states, I think as well. So you put out one request and then a whole lot of requests come back or something good happens and then it's like a magnet for all these other great opportunities that come. I know you would know this feeling. Um, and, and I feel like I'm really good at writing that high and I work really well when I'm writing that high and I make good connections and I make good work, um, but you cannot keep that high <laughs> forever. Right. 
And this is the problem that I find myself in. Like, can I make good work if I'm using a slower kind of energy, if I'm thinking about a slower kind of career? That's what I'm stuck on. You're building this career. You are saying yes to opportunities with intention. Like you're not saying things, and correct me if I'm wrong, like in a willy-nilly kind of way, a mindless sort of way. That means that you've taken control of the work that you do and the impact that you want to have on the world. And that's a really important thing to recognize in yourself because so many of us don't do that. From my own experience, I will say have in the past and probably will in the future say yes to experiences uh, or to opportunities kind of in a knee-jerk sort of way. And they're the ones that I end up getting burnt out on. It's the ones that I choose to be in intentionally that I can, even on the hard days, I can look back and say, well, I chose this. Yeah. You know, and if it turns out that it's a bit too much, at the end, you can use that that realisation to create maybe some boundaries around what that looks like. Um, how do you how do you go with saying no? I've tried to get better and mm-hmm. I remember I, I think that it was somewhere on your podcast where you might have talked about just giving yourself um, an out, so like yeah. replying to the email and saying, I'll get back to you on that. Yes. So it's not that immediate yes. But I've been in a period for the last three years, four years where I've been working on a book and the pace has been slower as well. So the pace of work coming in has been slower. I've been more intentional because it hasn't been the flurry of, for instance, what's coming up when a new book comes out in the world, when there's just so many opportunities coming at you. Um, so I haven't yet had a chance to try myself out. Okay. I know in that circumstance. And I worry that, um, yeah, I haven't got a strong enough set of criteria in place that will allow me to say no to those things because I want to do all the things. So I'm working on the no. I know for me when, I, um, when I'm in that mode of almost blindly saying yes, yes to all the things, there's probably something driving that behaviour and whether for me sometimes it's procrastination and I'm avoiding something, whether I'm avoiding, um, you know, a deeper concern or issue or the work that I really want yep. to do but I'm too afraid to do. Because I think that sometimes um, distractions do look like opportunities and yes. it can be really difficult, particularly if you're in that, that headspace of saying yes to everything and doing all the things, um, it can be really hard to distinguish which um, if you don't give yourself that buffer That's that you were so talking true. about earlier. Yeah. Um, but also sometimes I think, uh, and this is not a particularly good characteristic of mine, I will say yes to things because of my ego. You like to feel important, you know, and I think I'm still definitely learning, unlearning this idea that like a completely jammed calendar is success or is importance. Yeah. So, you know, having, I mean, maybe sitting down and being realistic with yourself, not when you're in that, that headspace of saying yes to everything, but you know, now or whenever you find yourself with a bit of buffer, a bit of white space to, to really consider what maybe those criteria should be, could be really helpful. Yeah, that is. Um, you know, and to, to actually write down a list and, and figure out what is going to benefit you in terms of, you know, your heart and the work that you want to do, but yep. also what's going to benefit you in terms of building your career. Um, so useful. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Brooke, and this might be completely out of turn, but have you ever said no to things that you have then later really regretted? Like I suppose that's the fear, right? But how many times do you actually regret those no's? Um, honestly, 
never. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not being a smart aleck when I'm yeah. saying that. Like I really think that when I when I say no to something, particularly if it's a bit of a stretch, if I'm yeah. like, oh, this sounds like a really good opportunity, yeah. but I'm pretty spoken for this month yeah. and I know that I'll resent it if yeah. I say yes or I'll end up resenting the other work that I'm doing yes. because I've just crammed it in, crammed too much into to not enough space. Um, I very, very rarely even think about the opportunities that I've said no to. If the answer is no, then it, it really is a no. Let it go. Often saying no to something good in order to say yes to something better. And that's that's a hard thing to balance, particularly, you know, if you're a writer and it's not like nine to five kind of job where you know that next week it's going to be there and you know that the week after and the year after it's going to look the same. I think there's also a tendency there where, um, you know, it's a little less stable in terms of income and work to want to say yes to everything just in case it all stops. I think that's part of it too, Brooke, that I think sometimes I equate slow with routines Mm. and rhythms and knowing what things are going to look like and thus having less of that fluttery, anxious feeling in the chest. So much of the creative life is uncertainty and risk that it's also weighing up those two things. And I think sometimes that anxiety and the risk and the danger creates really incredible work. Mm. But it doesn't feel like it always fits with what I see to be a, a slow life. And so maybe that's changing my headspace around what that slow life then looks like. I think that that's something that um, we probably all need to do. If we're if there's something in this idea of slow that has appealed to us, yeah. it's really important to not grab onto all of it that we see represented on social media or in books yeah. or in podcasts. It really often starts to become this thing that feels like it's confining us rather than allowing us to expand and to live in a way that works for us. What is it about slow that appeals to me? You know, is it maybe it's just the idea of creating buffer in your life? Yeah. Because then when you have that buffer and something great does come along, Mm. you're able to expand into it because you've created that space. Yeah. Rather than having got this created this rigid rhythm kind of life that doesn't allow you to have um, those experiences. And by experiences, I mean, we could just be talking about letting yourself wallow in the big feelings sometimes, because I think as a writer, that's really important to feel your feelings and explore them. And absolutely. And those big feelings, you know, you need, um, you need so much space to access, (laughs) to access those. And I think I've always loved um, that idea that Liz Gilbert talks about, about you know, you can't write, you can't write in, in that height of that extreme, those extreme kinds of emotions when your book's coming out and um, the reviews are coming in and everything's amazing. And I'll always remember like the launch of my first book was, was like a wedding. Like it was, you know, I was high for weeks after it because it was like too much, just like all the good feelings of my entire life are coming (laughs) right now in this moment. Can't I spread them out a bit? And alternately, alternatively, those moments where you're experiencing rejection or everything's gone wrong or you have to really tilt into the home and, and people around you. You might remember what Liz Gilbert calls it, but that, that kind of middle phase where you can just be in it, be present and do the writing. And yeah. that's what I'm looking for out of slowness too, I think, like a, a space where I can just get on with the work without being so buffeted by the ups and downs of, Mm. 
yeah, I suppose of a creative career, but also of life in general. I think you've just kind of nutted out what it is that you're looking to create with slow living. I mean, it doesn't need to be a meditation um, practice. It doesn't need to be a rhythm that works for you. It's just um, using these tools and strategies to create that buffer and to, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it that quiet space for writing. Um, So if you do create a rhythm to your day. It's not because the rhythm is the important thing. It's yeah. because you're creating space for this quiet work time. It's it's really interesting that fear is at the, the heart of so many of those um, decisions to hold on to things that yeah. maybe aren't serving us very well yeah. um, because we're afraid of what's on the other side. It's like, well, yeah. I'm comfortable with this discomfort. Yes. <laughs> so let's not try a new one. I think I was worried that not striving for perfection all the time would mean that I wouldn't be as good at mm-hmm. things. <laughs> and I think like that's a hangover from a, a lifetime of wanting to be really good at things and wanting to be perfect. Um, but in actual fact, going for good instead of perfect or good enough, <laughs> which I know is something you've talked about as well, instead of perfect, has been so freeing. So in the end, that's what it's allowed. It's allowed this... Um, contentness I suppose I've been able to be a bit more content with the way things are do you have a way of like envisaging the unknown or uh, of describing the unknown or relaxing into it I mean have you come across anything that works for you but like the idea of saying well I have no idea what's around the corner or this project is really exciting right now but I don't know what it's the finger on the utter pulse because still like I'm clutching at my chest right now going what do you mean what does that no no I think it's the unknown and uncertainty which is still my total Achilles heel as much as I know in my life I can say the unknown and uncertainty has thrown up incredible opportunities a couple of years ago for research on the the new book um I jumped on a yacht in Darwin and sailed to Indonesia with crew I'd never met. I'd never been on a yacht before. Um, you know, and I, and I did that because I could say I needed to do that for the book and um, it's important research. And I got a real thrill out of that uncertainty, but I'm not generally very good at doing that. I, I needed all these little other frameworks in place to say this is valid because this is research and you've got a grant and this is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so you you have an appetite for it. It's just the tools that you maybe want to develop to allow that you you to to explore that appetite. Okay. So I mean, I think the fact that you have done something like that, that you have embraced the uncertainty, is the first tool. You just kind of look back and say, "Hey, I, I did that." You know, maybe me of five or six years ago wouldn't have done that, and I did. And what happened when? I'm looking at making a decision where I literally have no idea what's going to happen. I often ask myself, what is the worst thing that could happen? And I mean, typically yeah. the worst thing that could happen is that like you would die. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's probably not a realistic response yeah. to the majority of these situations. Um, yeah. It could be that the project is a failure and no one comes yeah. or yeah. the proposal is it just doesn't work and every publisher says no or, yep. you know, it, it usually it's about failure rather than yep. horrible injury or, you know, other than to our, our, our pride. Yep. Uh, and I think maybe putting that in perspective as well can sometimes help. But mm. if uncertainty is something that, that, um, that really does sort of bring that anxiety, maybe using that, that 
that thing that you love about yourself, that ability to ride the big feelings, use that when you're in the uncertainty, like that swooping kind of stomach dropping feeling of not having anything to hold on to. Like that's a valid feeling that could, you know, inform that you just kind of observe it rather than gripping on for for the ride. That's really important, huh? That slight removal to to observe. Yeah. I mean, not always. I think that it's important to really be in your body and to really be in your thoughts and your feelings. But if it's something that you know you're you think that maybe you've put your finger on what it is that might be driving some of these choices, just mm. take that half step back and observe, you know, mm. why why is this my reaction? Where physically do I feel this sensation? Um, you know, what does breathing into my belly do during this, you know? Um, like, how, yeah, how do I feel if I just take 30 seconds and sit in it and then breathe in it and, and then move on? Um, and maybe that's what buffer looks like in those situations yeah. as well. Um, or that's what slow looks like in those situations. It doesn't need to look like a textbook version of yes. of slow. So I think, you know, take that image of what you think slow should look like yeah. Throw it away. And there's so we put so much pressure on ourselves to, you know, to do this. Like I to the point where sometimes I won't answer an email um too quickly because I think that, well, someone who embraces slow living shouldn't really be so responsive <laughs> on email. And people will think, oh well, she lives on her computer. So I don't answer an email oh, when I could. You know. That self-talk. Yeah. What do we do to ourselves? Right. So it's all and that's all um because of expectation you know it's all because of what we picture it something should look like that's got nothing to do with what works for us that's got nothing to do with what's going to you know give us those tools and that space and that that buffer that's all about external ideas and I think that being aware of them and gradually just letting go of them as they come up can be really powerful as well I feel like it's been an excellent therapy session (laughs) can we do this once a month sure I would love to (laughs) And we're back. What a great conversation. Some, maybe some of you can relate to some of those issues. Someone that can really relate or that you identify could really relate is the sort of expert for this part of the, or the second part of the discussion, and that's friend of the show, Tish Oxenrider. Yes, so Tish and I have chatted multiple times on the show, and the reason that I wanted to invite Tish on for today's episode is... Essentially, Kate's situation is much the same as Tish's. Tish is an author of a number of books. She is a podcaster. She's a blogger. She's also teaching now and really does spend a lot of her time tilting between all of these, these areas of life. And I was curious, is this question of dulling the shine or rounding out the edges yeah. something that Tish has, has dealt with herself? And if so, how? Mm. So, I mean, we go there and we also dig into getting to, to know yourself, you know, really understanding who you are as an individual and your, your characteristics as a person. And, um, you know, we end up in some really interesting places. So, um, you know what, I just want you to listen to it because Tish has so much goodness to share. Okay. Okay. Tish, my friend, hello. How are you? I am doing great. How are you, Brooke? So, so well. So happy to talk to you. It's so fun. And, you know, I know um, 
it's fun for us because we stayed at your house many moons ago when we were traveling around the world. And so we have that additional like family history connection in a way of your own home that you guys lived in at the time. And so for us, it's, it's just kind of like layer upon layer of connection. So it's really great to connect anytime we get a chance. I know. I've been very excited all day for this. Good. Yay. Now, um, you've had a chance to listen to my conversation with the lovely Kate. And I think that you are quite literally the perfect person to speak about uh, after that, because you and Kate really do share a lot of um, commonalities. You're both mm-hmm. authors, you're both podcasters, and you're both teachers, people who continue to teach are working around their writing work and other work. Uh, and I figured that that you would have so many insights that are specific to that situation, but also that are relevant to so many people listening. So I'm really keen to dive in. Yeah, me too. I mean, you know, listening to her chat with you, I was nodding my way through the whole thing because it's like, I feel like I have had these exact thoughts that, I mean, this is not a thing that that I do not escape very often as somebody who really truly embraces slower, simpler living, yet also kind of struggles with that paradox of also wanting to do good work, yeah. wanting to, I don't know, like use my time well. So I get I get that conflict. And I think that's kind of at the heart of it, isn't it? This this draw to slowing down and to getting deep, but also this draw to doing good work and doing things that light you up and doing things that that feel like um, you know, they feel fulfilling in personally, but that also feel like you're contributing in a really positive way. Um, now, I think at the heart of that really is this this idea of of slow living versus ambition. You know, do you think that they can coexist, first of all? Well, you know, I think life is full of paradoxes. Yes. You know, I think there are so many things that seem opposite that are both true. And I think this is another one of those. You know, I think this idea of being kind of almost making ourselves smaller so that we can live more congruously with our local surroundings and with kind of the natural rhythms of our life stage and our our physical life can really coexist with this sort of, um, I don't want to say nebulous, but this just the dreams we have, the visions we have for maybe what we want to do with our one life. I think they really can coexist, but maybe not in the way that makes sense uh, for other people and maybe not at the same time. That was kind of my thought in listening to her that I feel like there have been ebbs and flows of both of these in different seasons, this idea of maybe working more furiously and more, you know, in a way that's maybe more public or more about um, growth or scaling. And then there are seasons of kind of being quiet and maybe lying fallow um, for the sake of something else in our life that's maybe smaller or slower. That's been my case anyway. Yeah. I also feel like the cyclical nature of that is they kind of feed into each other. I mean, I know for me when I take, when I have periods that you could use the word unambitious to to describe it, even though I wouldn't, you know, that are quieter and maybe more reflective or more sort of inner focused you use that, you use the energy that you create, you use the space that you've created in order to sort of effectively live those bigger, more ambitious sort of projects as well. And I think that if you look at any given point in time, you're probably not going to look balanced. But if you take a, you know, a big step back and ask yourself, is that that balance sort of 
present over a, a period of a year or five years, you I think you're much more likely to get a better picture of the swings and the, you know, the cycles that are in play. Yeah. You know, it reminded me a lot of my own life this past summer for me. I took a sabbatical. I took a four week sabbatical from my work. This is the first time in 12 years that I've wow. done this. I, you know, would take breaks, of course, like several weeks at a time. I would even, you know, like, gosh, my nine-year-old son, when he was born and I was, you know, really furiously working on my career. I took a maternity leave at, you know, as a self-employed person, I did those things, but I never once truly took a sabbatical. And by that, I mean like a real break from my work. I think I would do things like say I was offline, but it would always be mentally there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or I would like just quickly check as though, you know, I needed to make sure the internet didn't burn down or something. (laughs) And this time I really, you know, I planned this a year in advance. I thought about it from August the year prior that next July, I need to take a break. So I did plan my entire work so that I could take a full month off. And, um, you know, I completely turned off screens. I had my assistant check everything and she knew how to reach me if I needed, you know, if there was an emergency, really. I mean, what kind of emergency is there in our line of work is, kind of, you know, I'm not doing heart surgery or anything like that. Um, but anyway, all that to say, when I came back, I felt so much more rested and rejuvenated and excited about my work than I had felt in years. Mm. And that's exactly what I was hoping for. And so it reminds me of just what you say, you know, several months in now. And while, you know, maybe the burst of energy has has quieted more just to a steady flow, I definitely feel better than I did maybe May and June leading up to my sabbatical. And I think it's because of those rhythms. I can completely understand that. And I love I love that you made a point of saying that it took you a year to plan that because, uh, <laughs> you know, it is no joke when you are self-employed, taking time away and truly taking time away is not something that is easy to manage. Um, and I don't think it gets spoken about very often when we talk about like the dream of, of being a, a writer or the dream of being self-employed. They're the flip sides. I think with the idea of Kate's work particularly was this um, question of whether slow living dulls the edges and it's it's, as a writer, particularly as a a fiction writer, I mean, she spends so much time exploring those emotional edges of human existence and she, I think she was really concerned that perhaps living, you know, in that middle 60%, not on the outer two 20% would reflect in her work. What do you think about that? Do you think that that kind of smoothing out some of the bigger bumps in life can impact your creativity in perhaps even a negative way? Yeah. You know, two things came to mind when she said that. And the first one was about your why, you know, in, in your work, knowing your why, knowing your reason for doing the things you do. And I think when it comes to writing, we all have different whys for writing. And so for some people, it might be um, to call to action some sort of change in people's lives. For other people, it might be to entertain. For, you know, someone else, the the book that you're working on, or really and truly the art that we're mm. creating, you know, might be to encourage or or do some other form of that. And so I think, to me, knowing the why behind the work I do really affects perhaps how I feel about where I'm choosing to live because do you know much about the Enneagram Brooke? I don't know if we've talked about this. I don't know a lot about it. No, but I know that I know that you're across it and I'm really curious to hear, um, hear your take on it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'll just, I won't get into it because I'm not an expert, but I will just say on my own end, I'm an Enneagram four and Enneagram all has to do with your inner motivation. And so for a four, my motivation is authenticity. And so for me, it matters a lot that the work I do is reflected in my real life, meaning that especially for those of us who do public online work, I really struggle whenever my work feels like I'm portraying a, a picture of something that I'm not or, or some form of that. And so for me, living slower and slowing down gives me the opportunity, and this is my second point after knowing my why, to have a quote regular life. And I say that in a good way, not in a negative way. I find as a writer that I have more to say when I'm in the messy middle of my life, when I'm maybe not being edgy or ambitious or spending all my time working or, um, you know, not, not that those things are bad or that there are seasons for those, but, you know, writers, especially those of us who tell stories, we need to have life experiences. We need to have things to say. And so for me, I find that I tend to be creative whenever I am maybe a little less public in, in the bulk of my life. When I'm doing a lot of just rubbing shoulders with my neighbors Mm. and my community. And, and that gives me sort of inspiration and fodder for my work. It reminds me, there's a recent uh, Ted talk that came out, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the actor. Oh yeah. He, Yeah, he recently, it was like a few weeks ago, he did this TED Talk about how he believes that um, we lose our creativity when we care about doing it publicly or when we care Uh about public opinion. And so he was using Instagram as an illustration, but kind of more broadly speaking, talking about how whenever he starts thinking about what um, people would think about his work, it actually messes with his inspiration. And so I thought of that a little bit listening to Kate that um, knowing your why really well keeps those voices a little quieter or maybe where they should be so that um, maybe living slower still feels inspiring instead of kind of the the flash of admiration from voices of people that are maybe not in our everyday slow life. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I have had a couple of conversations with people recently about Uh, creativity particularly and how important it is to actually have downtime. So I interviewed a woman named Katie Patrick on the podcast last season who essentially said that the neuroscience behind um, creativity has shown that we cannot access our full creative potential if we are living constantly stressed. Our brains simply Mm -hmm. do not um, function in that way. So to remove ourselves from constant connection and remove ourselves from constant doing and and play like creatively play you know draw or or, or write or, or do something creative that has no focus on the result or the output is actually what our brains require to come up with real creative solutions for whatever it is that we're we're grappling with and I, I mm-hmm. found that a really beautiful kind of um, crossover between creative work and it is work and and slow living you know they do sort of support each other in a way that I had not previously spent a lot of time thinking about Mm-hmm. you know I actually really love that you brought that up because uh, currently right now I'm getting my life coaching certification and so Ooh. in my my school yes um 
the classes taught by the woman who's getting her PhD in neuroscience, she gets into that. She talks about there are literal two parts of our brain that cannot light up at the same time. Yeah. And I cannot remember the names of them. No. <laughs> um, two parts of the brain. And um, the part that is activated in stress in the times, like maybe, you know, something jumps right out of us. We have to slam on the brakes in yeah. our car. The part that lights up cannot be lit up at the same time or, or the part of our brain where creativity comes from cannot be lit up at the same time. And so it's a literal thing that our bodies can't respond to. And it's just interesting how often we live with that stress part of our brain lit up. Like it, it's activated so much more than we realize. And she says that science shows that that part of our brain lights up um, whenever people were scrolling on their phones, when they were huh. like, when they were scrolling Twitter or scrolling Instagram. And to me, that was such a good practical application for spending less time on things like social media um, because it activates my stress signals. And it really does. Like I knew exactly what she meant. Like, oh yeah, I know that feeling. Um, and, and so for me, doing things like having boundaries around when I spend time doing that kind of stuff helps me be more creative. It literally helps me do my work. And then I'm doing work that comes from a place of more authenticity and work that I'm more proud of so that when it is time to share it publicly, I feel good about it. And I'm not, you know, comparing it to somebody else or, or feeling like I'm late or behind because I haven't spent as much mm. time paying attention to what everyone else is doing. It's really good for me personally. I, I have found over the years of doing this work that I need those healthy boundaries, you know, kind of ignoring the, the well-meaning other people, the other delightful people who are doing good work so that I don't compare. And I think that comparison is really at the heart of some of this as well, because even if you're looking at slow living as a thing, you know, as a, as a movement, if you spend too much, and it's so interesting how much this has come up in all these conversations, but if you spend too much time absorbing other people's ideas of what slow living should look like, it's really difficult to focus on yourself and what you're trying to achieve by slowing down and what you would like that to feel like in your own life. You know, we mm. we kind of take this movement that was sort of that sprung up out of a, a desire to to be countercultural and to stop trying to keep up with the Joneses, and yet we've sort of found another set of Joneses. As you say, spending less time on social media, which I know is always the thing that gets brought up, but for good reason. So spending less time <laughs> on social media or, you know, removing ourselves not only helps with that creative work, um, but also mm -hmm. will help us to focus on what we would like our lives to feel like as opposed to what we think they should look like. Do you find, you know, when you talk to people about simplifying and slowing down, that they have this picture of what they think they should be doing? Yeah, you know, I think they have this ideal version that, yeah. you know, the should is is exactly the right word, right? Uh, we should all over ourselves we is do. a thing that, <laughs> that we talk about a lot, this household, stop shooting on yourself. Um, because we, we, <laughs> we live in this world where everything is on display and yet everything is curated. You know, yeah. when you look at Instagram, people are not sharing the the mess behind the photo they're sharing the cleaned up place that they just cleaned up five minutes ago so they could take that photo and so when you start comparing your everyday messy middle life to everyone else's highlight reel you start building up in in your mind this idea of what your life should be like even in if it's slow and simplified you're not I mean, it, this goes for those of us who aren't maybe interested in those uh, social media feeds that are all about like, you know, fashion or exotic travel or whatever. Um, it, it can still taunt us, those of us who like to live slowly or, or live on our terms or whatever. Um, 
I have a friend who I love what she says here, uh, Emily Freeman. She talks about how the internet causes us so often to collect gurus Mm -hmm. and that sometimes that can be great. You know, I love that we can all learn from each other so easily and instantly, but sometimes it's, there's no end of all the people with great ideas. And at some point we have to, you know, kind of stop. I'm, I'm telling this to myself. I have to stop so that I can just say, I've heard enough. I have enough information. And sometimes we can actually mistake. Like I think our brains do this. We get the same hit of satisfaction from learning about it or seeing pictures of the thing we want and the act of doing it. Yes. And so we will we will think we've done something by learning about it, aka, you know, spending time on social media, when in fact, many times we just need to get off and do the thing that we are finding inspiration to do. And yet we we kind of lose our our desire to do that because we our brain gets the satisfaction it, it's craving by just looking at the photos of it. That is so yeah. true. I mean you can read a handful of quotes about mindfulness or meditation or some of Brene Brown's work or whatever it might be. And you go, yeah, I'm wiser now. I'm wiser. (laughs) Quite different to actually putting it into place. Yes. Downloading apps about meditation is not the same thing as (laughs) meditating. And I am not saying this because I I have conquered this issue. Oh, no, me either. My hand is firmly up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I also, um, I'm, I'm curious as well about this because I, I think that one of the things that Kate mentioned in her email and we sort of covered it in the conversation as well was there she has this ability to be a full-time author, which is the dream. You know, that is what so many people would love to be able to say. But I think also, you know, attached to this idea of the shoulds is maybe the fact that she doesn't want to and she kind of feels guilty about that as well. And I think that's you know, the interplay of ambition and slow living and, and creative work all kind of coming together in this 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 mess. I think it's perfectly okay to have the ability to be a full-time author and not want to. Um, I've met a, a number of authors who could potentially earn their living full-time off their work but choose to, you know, work in a library or choose to work retail because it works for them. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, I've I've wrestled with the sun because my work is the breadwinning work of our family. I'm the primary breadwinner. And yet Kyle and I, my husband and I, have recently decided that we didn't want the stress of that um, long term because my work depends so heavily on my creativity. Mm. And so there's a strange kind of, for me anyway, a low-grade hum of stress even if I'm doing just fine financially or however, you know, being responsible as an adult um, with my creative work, there's this little hum of, but how long is it going to last? You know, the, the internet changes so often and the way people consume art and information changes so often that there is that sometimes frustrating pressure to always keep up. And so we decided to diversify, honestly. Uh, And so he is working again, outside the home for a while, not forever. He didn't, he wasn't interested in finding a brand new career, but he missed being out and about. And so, you know, with him doing this means I have less time to do my work Mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, writing my next book is going to be slower. And we've just decided that that's what we want. And, you know, some of it is because of what I was saying earlier, because I want to have a life to write from. Yeah. 
You know, like an example right now is I am teaching English at a school one day a week. I'm teaching literature to high schoolers one day a week. It's, you know, so I have my other four days a week to do my other work and I love it. And I think it's just exposing me to so many other ideas and, and keeping me young being around teenagers and thinking about something completely different than my normal work. It's so good for those of us who are writers or self-employed to get out of our heads. You know, I think, you know, we're around ourselves all the time. And I love, I love that most of the time. I'm an introvert, but it's really good for me <laughs> to be doing something else. And I've heard that from other writers. I feel like, um, you know, people that just do other things, it just keeps us human and it keeps us um, kind of grounded. And, you know, I don't know, for me anyway, it keeps the embers going in my fire for creativity. Well, and I think you nailed it when you said that in order to write stories, whatever those stories are, whatever form they are, you need to live, you know, and mm-hmm. when I'm spending all of my time in my own company locked up in a <laughs> in a room with a computer and a, and a notebook, I mean, I enjoy it, but I'm not necessarily filling up my bucket of experiences and, and you know, listening to other people and, and engaging with people in ways that allow me to continue to build up that that reservoir of experience. You know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe even for Kate, if that's something that stops, you know, her des- desire to want to to have all these other projects on the go at the same time, instead of feeling like maybe that's a, a negative thing or something she shouldn't feel the, the draw to, looking at it as a way of filling up those those buckets or that reservoir of, of life experience from which you can draw on when you're writing. Yeah. And, you know, in our day and age, we can do more than one thing and be more than one type of person so much easier than our parents and definitely our grandparents that I just think it's such a great opportunity to take advantage. We don't have to stick with one career path. And, you know, I'm a fan of staying in our lane and not doing too much or biting off more than we can chew. But, you know, kind of what what I was kind of hinting at earlier with these different seasons of ebbing and flowing, I have found that the people I admire most in my line of work are people that dabble in different mediums and different times of doing things. Like an author that I admire in terms of how he postures his career is John Green, the Mm -hmm. YA novelist. Mm -hmm. He does all sorts of things. Like he writes YA novels, but then he also has a podcast with his brother. He does a YouTube show. I mean, not all at the same time, but he just does these different things. And I just think that's great. I think there's so many ways to just be a person and live a life that I don't, I, I love writing books and that's my favorite part of my work, but I also do other things in my work. I mean, besides, besides just my daily life, I also do other parts of my work. And I think that's good for me. I I like, I'm, I'm a big fan of diversification, both for, you know, like practical financial reasons, but also for just soulful reasons, you know, to keep, keep us alive and human. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think there's no no sure way to suck the joy out of something you really enjoy doing if by ma- than, than making it the only thing you do. <laughs> you know, anything yeah. anything that is a delight can become uh, you know, less of a delight if if you force yourself to only do that. Yeah. I mean, this sounds kind of fatalistic, but I'm actually a big fan of anytime I start something new or have a, a new 
possible project idea, I like thinking, what's the exit strategy? Meaning like, how can I get mm. out of this? I don't want to be painted in a corner. That's probably kind of my personality too. I always feel a little claustrophobic if I've, if I feel painted in a corner, but I think that's kind of healthy, you know, like if you're starting some kind of new job or path or, or move to a new location, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever settle or just kind of trust that you need to be here until it's time to move on. But I don't know, also be, be willing to kind of, um, back out of it in a healthy way. I think that's very helpful, actually. And it's something that I'm still learning, you know, how to do well. So there's yeah, one more thing. Too. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not the only one because I'm like, Tish sounds like she's got that nailed. Um, not at all. <laughs> so there is one more thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about. And it's sort of, it's the flip side of the, com- of, of that part of the conversation we've just had, where I 100% agree that diversifying the things that we do and continuing to to add, you know, experiences to our to our bucket um, is really important. But then I know I personally go through periods where I'm saying yes to things not because they light me up or not because it's something that I just feel drawn to, but for other reasons. You know, perhaps I I, I want to please the person who's asking me or there's some kind of self-sabotage at play or I'm procrastinating or I'm afraid of doing the work that I really want to be doing. When Mm -hmm. can you tell the difference between that intentional choice to dabble and the decision to spread yourself too thin because something else is at play? For me, it has to do a lot of times procrastination is my sign. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, you know, the the whole resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about mm-hmm. in in the war of art, the art of war. Which one? The war I get of art. The, I get them mixed up. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I think the resistance is real. I find myself anytime I have this idea, I will immediately need to do something else. Mm. And, you know, maybe at first that's okay because my idea needs to percolate. But when I find myself like, okay, this is a great idea and now I need to do the work to do it and I suddenly need to, you know, clean out my Dropbox or <laughs> or just do things that maybe need to be done but not right, right then. To me, that's a sign that there is something there. And I think it's because of that resistance. I think resistance comes from a place, a little bit of fear, a little bit of this um, – I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. And that's a good thing. I think we need to be doing risky things so that we we don't stay complacent and so that we grow as artists and entrepreneurs. And, and that involves risk. And we also tend to sort of shy away at, from risk and, and it feels scary. And so to me, that procrastination is a sure sign that what I am doing next is good. At the same time, I think it's healthy and okay to not beat ourselves up for letting things, I don't know, takes a little bit of time. Mm. Um, you know, that perhaps it's okay that there are just seasons when we are chugging along because, for me, I have found that the right time for this n- next new thing or changing paths or whatever shows up when it needs to show up. And, you know, it's interesting. There has been a thread through the entire conversation as I've listened to all of your answers and your takeaways of knowing yourself, you know, of having insight into your personality and your values and what makes you tick. How important do you think that is in all of this, in navigating all of the messiness? I think, honestly, it's everything. You know, you can know your why, but you need to know you who is saying the why. Those of us who are 
or artists or self-employed or, or can call our own shots are privileged. And so I think that privilege comes with the responsibility of knowing what is our best outcome for the common good. You know, mm. we do our work to make the world a better place. And it's it's for the world's benefit and for our own benefit to know ourselves well enough to know how to best do that. Knowing the core values you have, I think, really can determine our daily actions and our mm. daily actions actually allow us to do the why that we care about so much. So I think it's everything, knowing, knowing yourself well. Okay. If, if someone is listening to this and they're, they're like, I'm ready, I'm ready to dig, I'm ready to excavate <laughs> and explore, where's somewhere to start? This is really funny that I'm talking with you about this because when I was staying at your house, however many Christmases ago this was, four or five Christmases yeah, now, five, I think. I uh, had the seed of an idea for an online course I was going to do. This is in 2014. So online courses were just becoming a thing. Right now, I am legitimately reworking everything because I'm now getting my life coaching certification to pursue this kind of work because I love helping people figure this kind of stuff out so much. I I know the term life coach sounds so woo-woo and some of us just kind of think, what is that? I don't need somebody to tell me, yay, I'm doing a great job, <laughs> you know, all the time as I just live my life. But a life coach really and truly isn't that it helps you find the answers in you that you already have to the questions that you're asking. You know, they're just pointing out the bends in the road. Right. And so honestly, the takeaway I would say for anybody listening is to find a good coach because he or she will will just help point it out in you so that you can discover it for yourself. They're not there to give you answers. They're, de- they're there to hold your questions and maybe ask even more questions. Ask the question beneath the question so that you can get at what you're looking for. So that that to me is a really practical thing that's just been so beneficial in my own life. Thank you so much for showing up and for being so... Um so willing to to share and to offer you know these practical insights yeah thank you for that opportunity pleasure who is that hi puck pass